0: The true Israel of God. In our study of the book of Revelation to this point, we have learned that the Son of God is the one who, without sin, has broken the first six of the seven seals of the scroll. That scroll that is a decree of God's wrath that would be unleashed against the persecutors of his people. And we already know who those persecutors were and are. Now, as each of these seals were broken, John saw a vision. I'm I'm backing up to chapter 6. We didn't read that chapter, but I'm just telling you now what it contains. John saw a vision, as each seal was broken, of a rider on on various colored horses. You know, death rides a pale horse. You know, the, the red horse is a horse of war and bloodshed, that sort of thing. Each of those symbolize some aspect of God's judgment against these who have broken his covenant. And chapter 6 ends with only six of the seven seals having been broken. And in chapter 7, as you have heard, there is an interval. There is a pause between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seals. Now, if you look back at chapter 6, look at verse 17, the last chapter. Let me see the last verse. Chapter 6, verse 17. It ends with a question. For the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand? Now, like many other things in Holy Scripture, this passage and that question in particular has varied applications and understandings. It certainly has an application to the immediate context in which we're studying here, which is the impending judgment of God against old covenant Israel in the A.D. 68 to 70 time frame. But on a broader scale, in terms of the final day and the final advent of Christ, we could say it certainly asks that same question, as every person stands before the dread judgment seat of God to give an account. But then there's the more immediate personal application. And I like the way that one of the professors who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary, when I was a student there, I had the, Good privilege to meet him on a few occasions and speak with him. The late Dr. Philip Edgecombe Hughes and his marvelous commentary on the book of Revelation concerning this question, who is able to stand? This is what he said. This is the damning question mark that robs every ungodly life of ultimate meaning. The damning question mark that robs every ungodly life of ultimate meaning as the days of God's vengeance were finally coming against Old Covenant Israel, was there anyone who could escape the destruction that was soon to come upon Jerusalem? Now, we will find, among other things, in chapter 7, as we have heard, a definite answer will be given to that question, who will stand, who can stand. So, if you look again with me at the first three verses, "'After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth,' holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and to sea, saying, Do no harm, or do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So using symbolic imagery the Apostle John sees a vision that in terms of the practical application of what was taking place or going to take place that was about to take place in that time, it indicates that there would be a pause, a lull in the Roman assault against Jerusalem. Four angels standing at the four corners of the land of Israel. It's translated earth here. It means the land, the land of Palestine. For a time, they are commanded to hold back the four winds of God's wrath. Now, the context of all of this is the judgment of God against Jerusalem and the land of Israel. That judgment was taking place within and through the attack of the Roman legions against the city in A.D. 68 to A.D. 70. Now, the Old Testament reading that we heard today gives us but one of many examples in God's word, how God's wrath is often pictured as a blowing wind. Listen to this again, Jeremiah 51, 1-2. Yahweh says, Behold, I will rise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Kamai, a destroying wind. And I will send winnowers to Babylon who shall winnow her and empty her land, for in that day of doom they shall be against her all around. Now, the question is, why? Why was the Lord going to restrain His wrath and His final condemnation against His enemies for a brief time? Well, the answer here is given to us in verse 3. This pause, this interval, is for the sake of all of those who, again, bringing it down to the ground where it's taking place, all those in Jerusalem who have the seal of God on their foreheads. It is for their sake. So, in other words, inside the city of Jerusalem, as the Romans first made their assault, there were followers of Jesus in the city. Indeed, the city of Jerusalem was at that time the focal point of the work of the church. This was before Paul, the missionary journeys of Paul began to have their widespread effect. In the book of Acts, Jerusalem is the place where the first fruits of the gospel. And the witness are being born. It was there that the followers of Jesus were called from among the Jews in that place. And as we've read in chapter 7 of Revelation, the Lord is going to providentially deliver those believers from the horrors that were going to befall the city. Now, look again at verses 4 through 9. I'm not going to reread it, but just take a look at it there as your Bible's open. Because of the many symbols that are given to us in this book, I think people most often know the numbers 666, or as it's erroneously referred to sometimes, 666, and the number 144,000. Now, among Christians and others, there has been a lot of debate as to what that number is. Who, Who are these people? Some of you may know that the Jehovah's Witnesses, among others, they place a great emphasis on this number, And that they claim that in some impending, immediate, soon-to-happen-in-our-time-last-day, the 143,000 will be Jehovah's Witnesses. There are others among our dispensational friends at the other end of the spectrum who say that these are in fact all Jews who will be converted to Christ at a future time, future from where we are now, in what they call the Great Tribulation. Now, they are half right in one sense. There is a great tribulation, or I better should say there was. And let me just qualify something here. You know, when we are looking at these texts that clearly locate themselves in that first century setting, and actually what is about to come upon Jerusalem here, and what's being described here in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that was the great tribulation, such as has never been seen before among God's people. But that doesn't mean that radiating out from that over time before the final advent of Christ, there may be other small g great tribulations. God's judgment just simply doesn't dry up after he rang the hammer down on Old Covenant Israel. I I believe we're living through a, a period of time like that right now, as I'm sure many of you do too. So the dispensationalists are quite mistaken that the great tribulation is something that's not yet happened. It has happened. It befell these people in that time. But in the face of all these various theories, let's ask and answer a series of questions about this number, 144,000, and those people, whoever they are, and let's seek to do this ask and answer by means of God's Word. So the first question is, who are these people? And again, the answer is given to us in verse 3. As we look there, we see that they are the servants of God and they have His mark on their foreheads. Now, that is a means of expressing that they belong to Yahweh. They are God's people. Let me tell you, it most certainly does not mean that they literally have some stamp or mark stuck on their foreheads. Now, this imagery goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Here we go again. The author of Revelation, John, he takes us back to the Old Testament again. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord instructs the Old Covenant Church concerning the keeping of his law... And this is what he told them. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 8. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And then in verse 8, he he uses some language to describe what that sort of would look like symbolically. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words... God's law is to be so much a part of their existence and our existence that everything they do and we do is to reflect his law. As if, if again, figuratively speaking, as if it was tied or marked on their foreheads and and between their eyes so that everything they think and do, again, reflects his law. The hand is the, the thing of action. Between the eyes is the mind, the heart... Being sealed by God means that he owns us. We belong to him. But belonging to God means that we are also in union with Christ Jesus because Jesus said in John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say most people will come through me. Some people will come. Only the the Christians will come. He said no one comes to me except Comes to the Father except through me. So that according to the Word of God, the only way to be sealed by God is to come to Him through Christ Jesus. So I believe the people being referred to in Revelation 7 here are followers of Jesus. They live in Jerusalem, which means they had been formerly Jews. Now, I saw a quote somebody posted the other day in some forum somewhere that said uh, Matthew Poole, I think, was a Puritan era commentator, and that he identifies these people as Gentile believers. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's quite mistaken for reasons that I've outlined. So that's who they are. These are formerly Jewish believers who've come to faith in Christ Jesus as this Roman assault begins on Jerusalem. But why that number? And I think this is the answer to this question further shows the evidence that these people were Jews having been converted. The simple answer is that the number is symbolic and it represents something. And if you look again at verses five through eight, you see that it is clearly tied to Old Covenant Israel. All the tribes are listed there. 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes. Well, that equals 144,000. So then here is further confirmation that what we're seeing are specifically Jewish as opposed to Gentile believers in Jesus here. The number 144,000 symbolizes the completeness or the totality of the Jewish believers who've become Christians in Israel at that time. Within Jerusalem, there were those who followed Jesus, and they were going to escape the fullness of God's wrath that was to be poured out on that nation and on those people. Jesus warned them about this just a generation earlier, if that much. In Luke 21, verse 20, the Olivet Discourse, he tells them. Now, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And notice, he's not saying you... 2,000 years later, he's talking to the people who are right there in front of him. When you see this start to happen, you know that its desolation is near. You know, this would make no sense whatsoever if Jesus is telling these people something that's going to happen 5,000 years long after they're dead. What difference would it make to them? They won't see it. Ah, but they would see it because it was going to happen in their generation. Third question, who can stand or escape the coming wrath of God against Jerusalem here? Well, the followers of Jesus, they could and they would escape it. Jesus had warned them to flee, and he promised in Matthew 24 22, and I'm reading from the New Jerusalem translation, and if that time had not been shortened, this time of tribulation that was coming upon the city and the people, if it had not been cut short, no human being would have survived, but shortened that time shall be for the sake of those who are the elect or the chosen. So then, at this point, we can move on to the fourth question. How can they escape? And and how will the winds of God's wrath be restrained? Well, the answer to these questions comes actually from secular history. So we're reading about something that's being prophesied that's about to happen in that generation, which would put it roughly from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. That's a 40-year span. That's a generation in Scripture. And when we look at the so-called secular histories of that time period and, and among these people, well, lo and behold... Guess what? God's word, once again, is accurate. When the the Romans began their assault, and I'm a little fuzzy on the history here, but I think I've got this pretty much correct. When the Romans began their initial assault on the city of Jerusalem, and let, let me stop again. When they began this assault, it was being mounted because of the revolutionary, rebellious activity of the Jews in the city. The Romans had tried many, many times... To, to quell the riots, to quell the rebellions and the assassinations that were being committed by the Jews. Jews didn't want the Romans there. The Romans, it's too bad. You're going to obey our law or you're going to pay the consequences. And so the thing had sort of reached the breaking point in this time period. And so finally, the Roman Senate and the Caesar had had enough. And so the legions of Vespasian, the great Roman general, were dispatched to Jerusalem to put down the riots and the rebellion and to execute the criminals. Now, the Romans typically did not want to... uh, uh, They don't want to destroy cities because they can use these for their own uh, purposes. And so once the legions approached the city, the Romans employed those who could speak Hebrew and interact with the Jews to try to convince them to surrender rather than face the consequences. One person that they employed in that way was a Jewish man by the name of Josephus. Uh, he spoke Greek, he spoke Hebrew, of course, and he was a bit of a scholar. And so the Romans realized they had in this man someone who could not only act as a diplomat on their behalf, I'm sure they told him, you can be our diplomat or we'll kill you, that, probably something like that. But he also could record their history and the account of this war. I don't know if they didn't bring their own historian or they think it would be a good idea to have one of uh, the Israelites' own people to write this down. And so Josephus recorded, he was an eyewitness account to this Roman assault against the city. And he recorded it in a writing called The History of the Jewish Wars. It's still available. You can read it in Greek and English translation. He was an eyewitness to what happened. And we also know about this from the history of the Christian church, written by the early church father Eusebius about 200 years after these events. Those historians tell us that not long after Vespasian and arrived with the legions at Jerusalem, Vespasian, the general, was called back to Rome because of political crisis. The Caesar had been killed or died, and for a brief time, the Roman armies pulled back from their positions. And as a matter of fact, Vespasian, when he went back to Rome, was eventually elected or nominated or crowned Caesar for a time. Now, when the Roman armies pulled back, the Jews inside the city, well, they thought God had come to their rescue and delivered them. And so they just simply resumed their normal activities, carried on life as usual. Thank goodness they're gone. We dodged a bullet on that one. The Christians inside the city, however, knew better. They knew because the Lord himself had warned them, get out. Flee the city. And flee they did. History records that every follower of Jesus inside of Jerusalem left the city during that pause of the activity and pullback of the Roman armies. We even know where they went. They went to the city of Pella, P-E-L-L-A. Josephus records this in his account. You know, I'm sure that, uh, switching gears for a moment here, many of you, perhaps most of you, have heard on occasion when you get in disputes with people about various political things, Some people will say, well, you know, the Bible teaches communism. The early Christians were socialists. They didn't hold private property. They they sold everything they had and and had everything in common. They they point to Acts chapter 2, verse 45, where it says, and the Christians began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. I mean, isn't that what the communist manifesto says? Friends, now... Maybe some of us have a better understanding of why these Christians were doing that. They were not doing that because they didn't believe in having private property. Rather, they knew what was going to happen to the city and all the property inside it. So they, believing fully in the uh, the truthfulness of Jesus' prophecy, sold what they had, probably for a profit, because within a short time, it would either be destroyed or worthless. Now we come to verses 9 through 17. In these verses, John is introduced to an entirely group of different group of Christians. Because here now John sees a vast multitude, so large that there's no number that can adequately represent it. And those people, I believe, what we're being told here, these are all followers of Jesus who were Gentiles. They were the converts from among the Gentiles. Note that they come from every nation, tribe, people, and language group in the world. And in verse 14, we're told that they have come out of this great tribulation that's about to befall the city. So those Gentile believers will become followers of Jesus because of the great tribulation that was descending upon Jerusalem in that time. So those two things go together because when the Christians fled Jerusalem, When the Roman armies initially pulled back, they were forced to live among Gentiles in Pella and other places with whom they would have shared their faith in Jesus. And all through the Bible, in a redemptive historical sense, we see this pattern. The blessings, the deliverance, and the salvation of Almighty God toward His faithful covenant people. And the flip side, the reverse angle of that, His wrath and His punishment and His justice coming upon all His and their enemies. And here in Revelation, we see the same pattern. Revelation 7 shows that the false religion of the Jews was being destroyed so that the Lord might preserve the true Israel of God. These are the real sons and daughters of Abraham. That is, all those who are in union with Christ. And let me say, you've got to do some pretty serious denial of the teachings of Holy Scripture to somehow claim that the true children of Abraham are all those who deny Jesus Christ, which is what some dispensationalists claim about the Jews. But Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, in speaking to the Jews and their leaders, you know, they arrogantly told him it was a sneak attack on the on the birth record of Christ, because the rumor had already spread that he was he was a bastard born of a woman who had had a relationship with a Roman centurion or some sort of thing like that. He was born out of wedlock, in other words, a scandal in that time. That was the the crud these people were spreading about him. And so they said, you know, we we know who our father is. We have Abraham as our father. Remember what Jesus told them, John chapter 8? You are of your father, Satan. Your father is the devil, he said. And he said the Lord can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wanted to. That's the first indication that the true children of Abraham are not true children ethnically or by blood, but by faith and covenant. And Paul completely reinforces that and and clearly states it in Galatians 3, 7, where he plainly says all those who by faith in Christ Jesus are therefore the true sons and daughters of Abraham. So if we are in union with Christ, that promise, that blessing is ours today. Christ our King is still faithfully defending his bride and delivering his people. Now, we may not find ourselves in so dire a situation as those believers did in A.D. 68 to A.D. 70 in the city and around Jerusalem, although we may be getting close But regardless of our specific circumstance, either as a people, as a country, or individually, or as a family, God Almighty offers a way of escape and a marvelous deliverance. No matter what armies may be surrounding us right now, the armies of unbelief, the armies of decadence, the armies of denial, the armies of misery and sorrow and depression, the Lord has promised that if we are in union with Christ, He will deliver us. That was the hope and the promise that sustained those believers against all the chaos that was soon to break out among them. It was the same hope and promise that comforted the Gentile believers who later, they would be the ones savagely attacked, not by the Jews as the earliest Christians were, but by the Romans. We know about the, the martyrdoms that took place in many of the Roman Colosseums across the empire. Almost all of those people were Gentile believers in Jesus. It was the same hope that every follower of Christ has clung to throughout the ages. And it is the same hope and promise that, friends, we must cling to today. By God's grace, may he grant us the ability to do that. Let us pray.